thank you so much for your word. We, we mm. praise you for this uh, writing, these writings that somehow speak to us in a way, water our heart, our mind, our mm -hmm. spirit. We pray that as Lydia has sat under your word by way of preparation this week, you would bear fruit through her. Speak mm. to us, Lord, heart, mind, spirit. Deepen our understanding and our love of you. And bless Lydia as she speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, we're in um, Jeremiah chapter 31 this evening. And we're finishing up our covenant um, series. We've just been taking this journey through the Old Testament and the thread of covenant and God's faithfulness um, to us through that. So it's Jeremiah chapter 31, um, verses 31 to 34. And that's page 751 in your green Bibles. And that's the end of the PowerPoint. Yeah, there we go. Lovely. Sneaky glimpse there. Great. Let, let's read this together and pray. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you that you faithfully pursue us, that you are a God who is holy and present and sovereign and all-consuming love. And as we look at these words, as we delve deep into the truth of your word this evening, would you write scripture on our hearts and would you inspire us afresh? Amen. Amen. Um, well, about, oh gosh, a year and a few months ago, um, I was working in Madagascar um, just for a month, and I was working for a kind of missionary bishop out there, and I'd had this month of what was um, extraordinarily uh, hard work. I was living in a mud hut with a long drop. I got amoebic dysentery on day two. You don't want to deal with that without a flushing toilet. Um, and I was kind of coming to the end of my time there, and I was like, Lord, what I really, really need is an easy journey home. It's a really sort of a long way home from Madagascar, quite a few flights. And the issue with Madagascar is that it's the size of France, kind of stretched down. And there is one road, so you are totally, totally at the mercy of their internal airline called Air Mad which is worrying. In the, yeah. And AirMad are not allowed to fly in international airspace for reasons that are quite clear once they started to engage with them. Um, so um, what I decided was that basically I would go up to the capital a couple of days early so that I didn't miss my kind of international uh, flight out. Um, and my friend Robbie, who is um, a missionary in Uganda, he was out, so he was going to come with me. And then me and Robbie could kind of hang out in Tana, which is the capital, because you can't really be there as a woman on your own because it's pretty dangerous. They've had a military coup, stuff like that. Um, so me and Robbie get there. First thing, Sunday morning, 8 a.m., we're at the front of the queue in this kind of tiny provincial pretend airport thing in South Madagascar and we're like right let's get on this flight and they look at us and they go 
oh, we've overbooked the flight. Only one of you can get on. And we're like, what? No, you can't do that to us. Um, and we were wrestling with these guys, um, and they're just, they're not interested. So eventually they just said, no, one of you, one of you, one of you. And Robbie said, okay, Lids, you're going to have to get on that flight, and I will find a way to get up through uh, this country to the capital. And so I arrived in the capital, and I was like, flipping heck, God, it's all gone wrong. And I just heard God say, I am God in the it's all gone wrong. And so I was like, right, okay, I've got to somehow get some Wi-Fi, get hold of someone in England, try and get Robbie's flights moved so he doesn't miss them. Um, my mobile wasn't working, his mobile wasn't working, so I was like, I don't know where he is, he's just somewhere on this crazy island, and I hope he's heading sort of towards the capital to the airport. Um, and I got to this guest house, and the lady spoke English, and she took mercy on me, and she said, actually, there's a cafe I can walk you to, and you can get some Wi-Fi. So she took me over to the cafe, and I managed to get hold of um, my godfather, and he managed to sort the flights out, and we got things moving along. I was like, okay, God, you're God in the it's all gone wrong, and you're kind of answering my prayers here and sorting things out. And then I sat down, and I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm here. I've got 24 hours in this crazy, crazy city on my own. What am I going to do? And I just felt God say to me, I'm God in the wait. And I just had to wait for 24 hours, trusting that somehow Robbie would turn up and we would both get back to Uganda and England, respectively. And gloriously, we did. And he was God in the end, it's all gone wrong. And he was God in the wait. Robbie did uh, lose his luggage en route back to uh, Uganda, but that's another small story. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, that's a bit of a trite story, but it illustrates what we're going to get into uh, this evening, that our God is sovereign and faithful, and he's God when things feel like they've gone really, really wrong, and he's God when we need to wait. So where have we been? Well, we started way, way back in creation, the kind of covenant of creation that God looked out and said, actually, I'm going to create the world, I'm going to create mankind in my image, and he saw that it was good. And then things went wrong in the fall. So then we began again in uh, Genesis chapter 6 with the first covenant with Noah, and then we moved to the Abrahamic covenant, which Tim spoke to a few weeks ago, uh, Genesis chapter 12, where God said, actually, I will be a faithful God. I will um, make a people for myself. Your descendants will outnumber the stars. And then we moved to the Mosaic covenant, where we find a people for God's self, the people of Israel. And we looked at the fact that God is a present God and he comes to dwell among his people. And last week, we looked at the Davidictic covenant, the covenant between God and the kings of Israel. And now we come to the kind of culmination of our Old Testament thread, the prophetic covenant. Actually, the covenant is articulated again and again and again in the prophets, which are the sort of later books of the Old Testament. Grandstand moments, as Tim was speaking to last week. Covenant, covenant, covenant. The prophets constantly, constantly speaking covenant. And so we arrive in about 6th to 10th century Israel, BC, and that's why we're working kind of backwards. And we find that the Israelites are settled in their land that God has given them. And they've got kind of three symbols of the covenant, three symbols that say that they are distinguished as a people of God. 
And so they've got the king. And the king represents God's justice. The king is there to administer God's heart, God's justice to the people of Israel, to the nations around them. And then they've got the land, which may or may not be a bit of your front lawn. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> they've got the land. And the land represents God's faithfulness to his people. He promised this land to Abraham. And then they've got the temple, which is a dodgy chamomile packet I made last night. Um, and the temple represents God's presence dwelling with his people constantly and certainly. And so Israel actually this time a pretty prosperous nation. They're doing all right. But they keep turning away from the covenant. They keep turning away from God. And they turn away in two ways. Firstly, they're constantly getting involved in kind of idolatry and worshipping other gods. Because they're terrified of the big empires around them, like the Egyptians and the Assyrians. So what they do is make these kind of treaties with the Egyptians, with the Assyrians. The problem with those treaties is that in so doing, they are basically saying, actually, our God, Yahweh isn't sovereign, and we will choose to worship these foreign gods, worship the gods of Egypt, of Assyria. And so idolatry is becoming a huge, huge issue. Equally, the kings are not administering justice. Actually, the ruling elite is super, super unjust, and they're getting wealthy whilst the poor get poorer. And so prophets rise up in this time. Joel, Amos, Hosea, the first bit of Isaiah 1 to 39, Micah, Zephaniah, Obadiah. And they're constantly, constantly prophesying to the people of Israel saying, no idolatry, no injustice. And so as you read them, you see these kind of words like treaty, and they say no to the treaties. You constantly hear this phrase, widows and orphans, which represents injustice. And they're saying to the people of Israel, keep the covenant. No idolatry, no injustice. Walk as God has called you to. And Israel get 400 years worth of warning. And they don't step in to the picture. They don't really listen to the prophets. And so in 597, disaster strikes. The Babylonians come in. They invade Israel and Judah. The temple is destroyed. The land is taken, and the king is carried off into exile, never to return. And Israel are left with a, it's all gone wrong moment. And so into this, God raises up three more prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the second part of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. And they seek to answer the Israelites' cry from exile. And the Israelites have got two questions. Is God sovereign? And is God faithful? Because actually ancient Near Eastern thought said that if you were conquered, your God was conquered. So how on earth could God be sovereign if they've been conquered? But if God is sovereign, then is he really faithful? Has he just forgotten us? What are we doing in exile? And the issue is that the Israelites have forgotten that there are two sides to the covenant. 
actually there's tales of faithfulness that God had promised that he would be faithful to the house of David. 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and kingdom shall endure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so the prophets begin to say, actually, his faithfulness is never in doubt. It's never in doubt. Something new is coming, a new covenant. And we here know that actually that promise is true and certain. Jesus comes from David's line. God's faithfulness is never in doubt. But equally, there's heads of holiness. And as we said a few weeks ago, you cannot have his presence without his holiness. You cannot have his presence without his holiness. And so Israel had forgotten their part of the covenant, the second side of the coin. Psalm 132, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. But only if your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons shall sit on your throne forever and ever. God's holiness is expressed in his covenant. And so Israel, us as the people of God, are called to keep his ways, to keep his laws, to keep his statutes. There's two sides to the covenant. Gordon Fee puts it like this. They, us, belong to God. God does not belong to them. God has called them into being for his purposes of redeeming what was lost in the fall and of blessing the nations. We belong to God. He does not belong to us. But actually what he does is allow us to be involved. He says, actually, you're my hands, you're my feet. You're included. There's a dignity to the inclusion of us walking out his kingdom realities on this earth. As we said a couple of weeks ago, he's not a teddy bear. Our God is so good, but he's not safe. He's God almighty. He's sovereign. He's the lion of Judah. And so we're called into his purposes and to walk his way. And the prophets rise up to answer Israel's cries of, is God sovereign? Is God faithful? Through a deeper, deeper truth that something new is coming, a new covenant, but you need to walk in my ways, Israel. You cannot have my presence without my holiness. And so Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, looking at that text. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Something new is coming. That's the headline. With the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Israel and Judah, because actually stuff had been so awful that the nation of Israel had been split in two in the ninth century. And actually the northern bit had been destroyed and then the uh, southern bit had been destroyed in 597 when all of this went on. So um, Jeremiah has to prophesy to both parts, to Israel and to Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Israel. Because they broke that covenant, Psalm 132, they got it wrong. They did not walk in his ways. Though I was a husband to them. Note, what does the New Testament say about Jesus? 
He's a husband with the bride of Christ. Declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people, as Tim was saying last week. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah is prophesying a new covenant. He's prophesying Jesus. He's saying, actually, you are going to be ministers of something new and different. It's what Paul picks up in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're ministers of a new covenant. And then what happens after that? Ezekiel rises up. Ezekiel 36, uh, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Again, Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians 3, 3. He says, actually, our hearts are written with the spirit. The law of the living God is written on our hearts rather than on tablets of stone as it was in the Old Testament. We are the new temple. Ezekiel prophesies again and again that we are the new temple. That as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3:16, you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells among you. And then they're followed by Isaiah who begins to prophesy a kind of universal element to all of this. Begins to say it's not just about the nation of Israel, it's about all humankind, all are beckoned in. Isaiah begins to tell us of a suffering servant, of Jesus Christ who will take the place of our sin. And so 42, uh, verse six, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, I will keep you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. God is all in all. He's God in the it's all gone wrong. But the outcome doesn't always look how we think it's going to. His faithfulness and his sovereignty are never in question. But we walk in his ways as the clay, as he is the potter. And then our story reaches a kind of culmination in the book of Malachi. In 538, um, the Israelites were allowed back into the land. So the land is restored to them. And they begin to rebuild the temple. This is going to stand. But the issue is, it's a kind of faint reflection of what it was before. So the land is kind of granted back to them by the Persians, but they still live under Persian rule. It's kind of a half-hearted thing. And the temple they rebuild, it's okay. But Ezra says that actually the older priests, when they saw the new temple, wept, wept. Because the glory of the Lord was not there in the same way that it had been before. Everything's compromised and everything is calling for Christ, for this new covenant. And so the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi with Malachi saying to us, for those who revere my name, the son of righteousness, that's Jesus Christ, will rise with healing 
in his rays. A chap called Craig Bartholomew puts it like this. God has not forgotten his promise. God will renew Israel and then draw all nations to himself as he promised Abraham. In that process, the whole of creation is to be renewed. God's kingdom will be established over all the earth. And it's with this hope that the Old Testament ends. And so the Old Testament ends with us looking to the son of righteousness. But then, there's 400 years of silence. I often wonder what on earth was going on for people in those 400 years. But what we know is that God is God in the wait. And so in those 400 years of silence, God was still God still faithful, still sovereign, but he's God in the wait. And then the New Testament opens and Jesus bursts onto the sea. And all that has been prophesied before, all this stuff about fulfillment and a new covenant becomes a reality. And the cross stands above everything. The king is Christ. The land becomes every person who will call on the name of the Lord. Have your front lawn back. Um, The land is for everybody. It's for all creation. All who say, I'll call on the name of the Lord Jesus and set my life in his hands. The covenant is for all. And the temple temple becomes us. We are the living temple. The spirit of the living God, the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, lives within each and every one of us. And that is part of our salvation hope that yes, there is fulfillment in the new creation. Yes, we live between the tree of the cross and the new creation. But in that time, God has not left us as orphans. The spirit of the living God lives in each and every one of us, and we are the temple. The cross stands above it all. So the writer of the Hebrews, who is extraordinary in pulling all these Old Testament threads into a New Testament reality, he just quotes our passage from Jeremiah. And then he says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, and those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set us free. The cross stands above it all. The new covenant is permanent and true and full of absolute hope. And that's what we're pressing into now. That's what Advent is all about. It's a leaning into Christ and knowing that he is all in all. He is God when it feels like it's all gone wrong. He's God when it just feels impossibly hard. And he is God when the wait feels too long. He is sovereign and faithful, and he will never, ever leave us.
And so what's the take home of all of this? Well, if he's God in the it's all gone wrong, and he's God in the hard stuff, and he's God in the wait, what is he beckoning us into as new covenant people, as new creation people? Well, I'd say that actually I think he's asking us to change our viewpoint so that we can look in those times when it feels really, really tough and just say, okay, I'm certain of who God is in this, even when it's really, really hard. The tough stuff, that it's all gone wrong, the long wait, honestly, it's just part of life in a fallen world. And one day it will be utterly restored and redeemed when the Lord returns to judge the living and dead and redeem the whole of creation. But God uses those desert times for ultimate good. If there's one thing I've begun to notice in the life of Christians that I love and admire, it's that actually no one gets to do anything extraordinary for the kingdom without a desert time. And God is God of the desert. Where was Abraham found? In the desert. Where was Moses found and called? In the desert. Where was David found? A shepherd near the desert on the hillside. What happened to Jesus? Actually, Jesus was filled with the Spirit and immediately sent into the desert to wrestle. And then he came out of the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit, leaning on his Father. Mike Pilavacci is extraordinary um, on this whole theme of the desert. He just says this, allow him, God, to lead you into the desert. Do not resist. When you find yourself in a desert place, don't be too eager to run back to the bright lights of the revival meeting. Stay in the desert and let him teach you things you could never learn in any charismatic meeting. The desert is the place where God prepares you and forms you. It is his place and he waits for you there. In the desert, God is all in all. He's God of it's really hard. He's God of this feels like it's all gone wrong. And he's God of the wait. And there's a theme of mighty brokenness that runs through scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When we feel weak, we are strong. Because all glory goes to Christ. Often the desert times, the hard times, they can be the best of times. The desert's a place where our character is developed, where we find a depth in who we are. And perhaps most importantly, it's a place of intimacy. It's a place where all is stripped bare and all we can do is rely on God. And we find ourselves saying, Lord, I want to know you more. The desert is his place. In the early 1980s, there was an amazing Christian leader called David Watson. And he just said, the great need today in terms of Christians is for more deep and authentic people. And I would say that in 2017, that is even more true than in 1980. We need deep and authentic people. We need to allow ourselves to change our gaze 
when things get hard and to say, okay, Lord, here I am, back in the desert, on my knees again, but I know that you're good and producing me a heart for your kingdom, producing me a perseverance and a robustness that will run this race well. Actually, we're called to be people of his kingdom, bent on his cross. We're not called to be bubble wrap Christians. Our culture is feet, 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 miles wide and about that deep. And the last thing it needs is a church that's half an inch deep. Don't be a bubble wrap Christian. Be a cross Christian. When you find yourself in the desert place, when it feels like it's gone wrong, know that there's total security in him. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. His faithfulness is never in doubt. But he might just have you there. He might just be holding you there for his eternal purposes. His timing is perfect. 400 years of a wait was not too long. It was the perfect time for our redemption. And whatever you are going through, I don't mean to be trite about this because lots of us in this room may be going through really tough stuff, but he's God. He is all in all. He has not let you down and he's doing something with you in the desert place and you can trust him. You can trust him. The wait, it's just never too long if you find yourself in that season. Actually, as painful as it is, God's last minute is often a lot later than our last minute. And we need to trust him. And so, Christianity, what we're doing here tonight is about the worship of a crucified God. It's about living life and the tension of the now and the not yet, of all the hope, all the fulfillment, all the joy that is found in Christ. But the knowledge that we live in a fallen world and things can be really, really tough. But to live in the hope of all that is to come of an eternal reality, to know that our God is all in all. He's God in the it's all gone wrong. He's God in the this is really, really hard. And he's God in the wait. And that's what we're doing in Advent. We're bending into him, knowing that he's good, that he has come and he will come again. we're going to stand and worship and then pray. So if you want to stand, James and the guys, if you want to come on up, that'd be wonderful. And let's bend our hearts, our ears, our voices to the God who is all in all.